Hello and welcome to IEEE Soft Robotics Podcast. In this podcast, we are going to interview researchers from both academia and industry about their work, thoughts, spectrum, and more beyond that. This is Marwa Edwini, and I hope you will find this podcast useful. If you would like to connect with us, simply send us, and we will be happy to hear from you. And here is my interview. Thanks. Okay, so I'm, uh, uh, welcome everyone. Thanks for, for tuning in. My name is Francois Bartholomew. I'm, I'm a professor in uh, mechanical engineering at the University of Colorado Boulder. And um, my research is at the, I would say, the intersection between mechanical engineering and materials. Um, so more specifically, I develop uh, materials which are inspired by nature. Uh, uh, so we've been. I did my PhD, for example, on the the, the strength and toughness of seashells, and um, <clears throat> tried to discover new uh, micromechanisms of deformation and fracture that are not necessarily uh, observed in or exploited in uh, in engineering materials. And then uh, hopefully understand this to an extent that we can go to the lab and in the second stage make uh, engineering materials that are inspired by the seashells. So we did seashells, we worked on uh, 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 fish scales, fish fins, we did a bit of bone uh, biomechanics and bone, uh, bone-like uh, inspired biomaterials. And then uh, more recently, so, so far it's been very much about strength and, and toughness. And I would say that uh, recently we've been interested in morphing materials that are materials that change the geometrical shape from external stimuli. And so that's what took us to, to fish fins. So that was yeah. our latest work, yeah. Yeah, first of all, I'm a fan of all your work because I think uh, designing tougher material, I think that's something I think most in, in the community and I think generally speaking, we need tougher material. But let me ask you first about how nature, for example, you mentioned seashell, for example, and there's a lot of example of animals, they have this kind of toughness and tougher structure so that they can resist damage or to protect themselves. If you could tell us more about the examples, how they managed to this evolution, how it happened, this creature can manage to have this kind of tougher material or structure to protect themselves. Okay, yeah, that's a great, that's a great yeah. question. Yeah. So the um, uh, first of all, the, I should say all these materials we've been looking at are they are they have a high content of mineral, which makes them stiff and hard. So you get the stiffness, the hardness. That's the easy part. Now, typically, when you make something. Uh, highly mineralized, uh, they tend to be more brittle. So that means they crack more easily. If you take a piece of skin, for example, or a piece of rubber, then it's uh, inherently a tough material because it, it deforms rather than, than fracturing. But then if you remove this kind of large deformation capability by putting a lot of minerals, then um, you get uh, brittleness usually. So the extreme example is glass, right? So glass is a uh, it's pretty stiff, pretty hard, but then it doesn't resist uh, uh, crack propagation. So it's not a very tough material and then it's, it doesn't resist impact because of the same reason. So um, the secret really in nature, and that's, that's quite interesting that we found this kind of general rule that you can, you, you will find in seashells, in teeth, in bone, in fish scales, is that we have a um, uh, uh, essentially building blocks which are the mineral part of the of the material 
and these building blocks are joined by weak interfaces. Okay, so what by, when I say weak interfaces, these are kind of lines within the material or planes within the material where cracks can propagate more easily. Okay, um, and so that's very important because um, so it's first of all it's a bit counterintuitive, right? Because we nature makes actually better material by putting a lot of weak interfaces within the within the material itself, which sounds counterintuitive, but in terms of crack propagation, it makes a lot of sense because with weak interface, you gain the capability to control where the crack is going within the material. So for example, you can, if a crack is propagating this way, because if you stress the material horizontally, let's say, the cracks will tend to propagate vertically, right? Across the direction of pulling. And then uh, uh, in a material like glass, the crack will go straight without any reason to deflect, okay? Now, if you put a weak interface across the crack propagation, if the interface is weak enough, then the, you may, convince the crack to deflect into this interface, right? Mm. Um, and so the, already you manage to control to some extent crack propagation. And so nature is really master as, at doing this by using all kinds of 2D and 3D intricate architectures and networks of this weak interface to actually deflect cracks or uh, divide crack into two sub-cracks. Mm -hmm. or trigger all kinds of mechanisms. And so that's the, uh, if you, Really, if you look at how the bone or teeth or seashells or fish scale fractures, you will find that they, they, all these mechanisms are based on this idea of like hard building blocks joined by weak interface. Yeah, wonderful. Maybe I'll just ask you about this kind of interplay between the hard interface and weak, weak ones. What kind of morphology do you think? Is it something do you believe that's how they represented or the way? Because when we see the examples, it's different. For example, you you did the the, the inspired glove that minimized injury in in workplace and based on facial skills. So how do you see this morphology play the role here? What's really other element you think is still not answered? Maybe morphology. I don't know. What do you think about that? Right. Yeah. So it's a very interesting question because um, uh, in nature and in the the materials that we develop, there's no like one size fits all kind of design solution that will. <clears throat> that's kind of magical and will work for any kind of application. Okay, when when we what we find is that um, depending on whether you try to develop a material that resists uh, 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 cutting, for example, or or sharp puncture like your protective material, um, or maybe you want to define uh, to develop a material that's very strong when you try to flex it, you will find that the type of architecture and this that's perfect for each of these applications may be quite different actually right so this, this is very much uh, application dependent and it depends on how you stress the uh, how mm -hmm. you load the the the, 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 the component uh, mechanically right mm -hmm. uh, that that being said there are some um, kind of universal patterns that um, that are found um, in these natural materials and one of them is the brick wall essentially structure where you just like a brick wall so you have the hard blocks are like the bricks and then the weak interfaces are the, the mortar, essentially, of the bricks. Right? Yeah. The adhesives of the bricks. And then if you look, it's quite interesting because if you, <clears throat> if you look at, at, a, at, a, at a house, for example, so I spent, I spent about 13 years in Montreal, actually, before moving to Colorado. And there's a lot of uh, uh, old houses, brick uh, wall houses. And, um, and sometimes you can see cracks that propagate maybe from the corner of a window. 
and the crack is being deflected by the mortar, right? So we find this type of uh, a lot of the same mechanics actually in brick wall. So this this structure of brick wall is actually you can find in the many seashells use that trick. So they make literally like 2D or 3D microscopic brick walls where you have some uh, mineral plates or tablets which are basically attached by uh, by proteins by by bioadhesives, and that's at the microscopic scale. In bone, if you, you you can you go down to the nanoscopic scale now, very small, and you're going to find the same kind of arc, the structure actually, some kind of nanoscopic tablets mm -hmm. of minerals that are arranged in almost like a brick wall, and uh, you also find this in teeth. We also find this in fish scales, and so a different length scale, but it seems to be an excellent recipe to make materials mm -hmm. that are uh, very strong, stiff, and also tough in tension. Right, yeah. and so it's it's quite fascinating to find that. Uh, uh, in materials that are taken from animals, which are completely different, right? On the evo yeah. evolutionary tree, there are totally different families of materials. You find that somehow nature converged to the same uh, general solution to 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 solve the similar mechanical yeah. problems. Right? Very fascinating. So I'm curious to ask you when you have this kind of you look to what already we have in nature and you try to design this kind of different category completely different material to make this desired goal either be tough, lighter, smart, as you mentioned, it depends. How you rearrange this material? I don't know I don't know what's the strategy. Do you have to take exactly how already evolution designed this in a certain way? Or do you think you have to tweak it in a certain way? I don't know how this transition is going. It's kind of, of course, we speak about inspiration or just like but I'm curious in material design because is it the same arrangement? How you arrange them or how to do something different? Yeah, it's a, yeah. It's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. So the, um, we, do, we do a lot of tweaking actually. We do even more than tweaking. The, the materials we make inspired from the seashell, for example, they look totally different. From, they don't look like a seashell at all actually. Mm. I would have to tell you this is inspired from a seashell so you can right and uh, and show you how and uh, but it's not obvious right and so the the key idea is that um, we don't copy directly in nature we don't copy directly these uh, things these material these great materials we find in nature so that's why we use we prefer the term bio inspiration over terms like biomimetics or biomimicry which mm -hmm. imply that you simply copy what you see in nature right mm -hmm. and uh People have taken that route in the past, and sometimes it didn't end very well. I'm thinking of this uh, uh, engineer uh, uh, girl who, who Bonnie uh, was the name of the engineer. So he developed an airplane in the early 20th century, and he was convinced that the best way to make an airplane was simply to flap the wings, mm. right? But he didn't have. A, he was simply copying birds, but he didn't have a deep understanding of aerodynamics and so that ended up in a disaster he actually died in his plane basically it didn't work at all right so shallow copying of nature doesn't work it's not a good route a, a term we prefer is bioinspiration where we we really work hard the in the first phase of the project as understanding the natural model so do a lot of mechanical tests mechanical modeling so we really understand what makes this natural material so good at what it does um, so we can abstract this key ID, or sometimes we have, sometimes it's only one ID, sometimes it's a combination of maybe two or three IDs into our engineering system, right? So mm -hmm. 
Um, I mentioned this general rule of using uh, hard bricks bonded by softer, weaker interfaces. And so we actually use this concept, this idea, for example, to develop, to develop bioinspired glasses, right? So glass panels that have the same kind of architecture. So obviously the, the base material for the bricks is different, right? They're not, uh, it's not calcium carbonate, which is actually a pretty poor ceramic, but that's all the seashell gets from the, from the seawater, right? As engineers, we can use better base materials. And also we work at, uh, we don't work at the same length scale. So the bricks in the seashell may be microscopic in size. Our bricks are more in the millimeter in size. Um, so when you take all this into consideration, we, we, we kind of abstract the brick wall, we abstract the weak interface, but then the end uh, result is some kind of panel, glass panel, and it doesn't, doesn't look anything like a seashell basically. <laughs> okay. Great, great. So, yeah, I would just ask you in that case, do you think when we aspire to design tough material, do you think we can push the capabilities to have material with tougher properties, tough properties, I don't know, maybe beyond what we have in nature, and maybe never damage? I don't know, that's the dream of everyone, design something very strong, never damaged. I don't know, do you think we can achieve that goal that have material never damaged, or that doesn't make sense? Uh, um, yeah, so the, uh, uh, yeah, so I think the, the, this, I'm trying to, to think of where to start with the, to answer your question, but, um, um, the, the idea of damage is a bit tricky because, um, um, if you look in the recent history, for example, of how to make strong ceramics. Okay. So ceramics are. It's a big area of research how to make. So ceramics, of course, they're very stiff. They're very, I'm talking about engineering ceramics, like, like boron carbide, aluminum oxide. Mm -hmm. These are very stiff and, and very strong, but they, they, they tend to be brittle, right? And so they're very sensitive to, to damage, essentially. So if you have a little um, impact on the surface of a ceramic part, then you, you have to change the whole thing because that really decreases the strength. Just like on your windshield, if you have a little uh, you know, impact on your windshield, it's highly recommended that you fix it, either fix it or you change the windshield because the, the overall strength of your windshield is compromised by the presence of a small defect, right? So there's two routes to, to address this. And so historically in ceramics engineering, one way is to try to suppress the defects completely at the fabrication stage, which is quite expensive expensive to do. Another route that uh, uh, to me it's more a bit more interesting is to say okay there's going to be defects there's going to be either at the fabrication stage or when you use the component there's going to be defect. Now how can we put program some kind of mechanism within the material so that the cracks that will want to grow from these defects will be neutralized okay. Mm -hmm. And so um, nature actually uses the second route because if you look at your bones, your teeth, seashells that contain tons of defects, actually. Okay, so the idea is not so much to, to prevent the formation of damage, which is extremely difficult. Damage or initial defects are already there, but how to, 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 to design your material, to create your material so that uh, these defects don't compromise the overall performance of your component, okay? Mm. Um, so that, I think that's the, that's the vision there. Okay. Um, now can we ever make a material that never breaks? I don't think this, this will ever happen, right? All we can hope for is to increase 
mm-hmm. the, the strengths. But at the end, um, there's some limitation if you if you take two atoms of uh, of material, right? You pull them. You look at the strength; it's extremely high, but you can never theoretically you can never exceed the the strength of yeah. the inter- interatomic bond between two atoms, right? So there's only that far you can go with this. But uh, uh, yeah. I think there's there's still a lot of room for improvement, right? For many materials like glasses or ceramics, they make them stronger or or more uh, damage tolerant. Then there's uh, there's still a lot of work to do, and nature has still a lot to to teach us in these areas. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. And I guess ask you about the redundancy in that case, because I was looking for example, spider, when they build their web, and if there's damage happening in certain part of the web, it still, yeah, have the whole structure. I don't know how do you see that also, if you apply this tough material, do you think the redundancy, if that you can have this kind of, I don't know, do you think the concept of redundancy can be applied in designing tough material? Or maybe do you think there's something in evolution is not perfect. You think we can engineer something better than what we have already in evolution? This is maybe missing. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I mean, there's there's different questions in your question. I think there, but um, uh, yeah, I mean, the case of spider silk, you do see uh, redundancy, or I guess you could call it again damage tolerance, right? The fact that the whole spider web is not if you if you break a few strands. Yeah. In the web, right, the the strength of the web and the functionality of the web is not is not uh, compromised essentially until you really put a lot of damage into it, right? Um, uh, now, can we uh, is is are, are these materials we see in nature perfect uh, in the the way they constructed? Uh, probably not, right? There's uh, because there's lots of constraints for evolution is still going on, right? Anyways, these are not. Uh, these materials keep evolving, uh, um, and then um, there's a lot of constraints in nature that we don't have as engineers, right? So nature has to has to grow things um, at room temperature, more or less, right? At normal pressures, uh, with very limited amount, uh, 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 very limited number of types of raw materials, right? In nature, we we nature only at least for structural components, there's only a a few uh, a few atoms that are really used in nature, right? So the, um, as engineers, we have access to the full uh, table of elements, right? So that we can use to to actually enrich the the, chem- the chemistry of these materials, and so we can actually go beyond um, some of the limitations that are set on these biological materials. Right? Mm-hmm. Right. Um, I, I've been to conferences in biology conferences, zoology conferences, and uh zoologists and biologists they they hate the term optimized right at some point when i started in this area I said, okay oh, we have yeah. this great material in nature it's been there for millions of years hundreds of millions of years it's probably optimized but uh it's not in nature things keep in uh, uh evolving and they sometimes optimization implies that you have a global minimum sometimes you have some construction in nature that are stuck in local minima and so it's it's a very tricky question yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, but I'm curious to ask you and your group about maybe the challenges and maybe it's still a question for you in the research. You think it's a hard question and you don't know the answer for this question. I don't know what what kind of challenges you still have or hard question you don't know the answer for when it comes to your research. I would say hard, um, difficult challenges we're working on in our lab. Um, 
uh, and these are they, they're not necessarily about um, looking at biological materials per se. Although there's quite a bit of challenge sometimes to try to understand these materials because they're, they're, they're quite complex and there's a lot of layers of complications in terms of structure, mm -hmm. etc., at multiple scales. But I think the, the main big challenge we face um, in this process of uh, bioinspiration is fabrication. How do we fabricate uh, mm. materials in the lab that duplicate what we see in nature, right? So nature. These biological organisms, they really master at making nanostructures, microstructures, some of them quite, uh, I was talking about this brick wall. If you look at a piece of seashell on the uh, electron microscope, you're going to see this super nice, almost perfectly regular brick wall at the mm. micro scale. Uh, and we don't know how to make this in the lab. If you look at uh, people have been very creative over the past few decades at using all kind of techniques like to align microscopic, you know, platelets into matrices and to try to duplicate this type of brick walls. But if you look at the state of the art, like brick and mortar material at the micro scale, it's, uh, it's still, uh, it really pales in comparison to the, the natural model, right? So fabrication is a, is a big challenge, right? Even if you understand how the natural system, your natural model works, yeah. And what it should be in the lab, then uh, you're, you're, you're going to hit a wall uh, when it comes to fabrication often because it's, uh, it's very difficult to duplicate uh, biological material in the lab. Um, I like to, when, when I'm asked this question, I like to, uh, to use the, um, the example of, um, of Velcro. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the, there was the Swiss engineer, uh, the Mestral, who found uh, that you have these seeds, right, with the little hooks that uh, these burrs that they, they basically, the idea is essentially to attach to to animals or to your socks when you walk in the mountains and this way the, the seed can travel very far. So that's the idea. So the, I think he, he, it struck him that we could make a material using this hook and loop mechanism, right? Um, but then it took him 10 years to develop to find a process to actually make this on a large scale that could be used uh, on the, at the, in actual applications. And so it took actually 10 years from the time the inventor understood the hook and loop mechanism to the time that he found a way to actually fabricate Velcro, right? Wow, that's interesting. So that's, and that's pretty representative of what we see today in bioinspiration, right? You understand what you yeah. want on paper. We see it at work in nature, but then when it comes to making uh, artificial things that do the same thing in the lab, then it can be extremely challenging. Because the skew, if we want to, yeah, achieving the capability for fabrication that we have the same material as we have in the seashell, what does it take to achieve that? Maybe the direction, is it the machinery, is it the approaches? Where do you think it's the, the right path we have to go for? Or maybe the question, so that we can achieve that goal. Yeah. yeah, that's the main uh, bottleneck now to yeah to to, to applications, right? Um, how to find a, a economically feasible uh, approach to to make this bio-inspired material on large scale, right? Yeah. Um, so uh, uh, if you ask different researchers in this area, you may have uh, the very different answers, mm -hmm. right? Um, uh, a lot of uh, the approaches nowadays um, tend to 
to to keep the same um, to try to make materials at the same um, uh, length scale as nature right so if you see a microscopic brick wall try to make a microscopic brick wall in the lab mm. our approach uh, but the result the the, the 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 problem with this approach is that you the result may be quite imperfect compared to the natural system so you may have a pile of bricks right which mm. are roughly aligned but they they're not as perfectly like brick wall like as you see in nature right our approach has been to to scale things up to the millimeter so that we have much better control over the, mm. the architecture of the things we we make in the lab and so this has been quite successful actually because as soon as you scale up then you have access to many more yeah. uh, fabrication techniques um, so the the brick walls we make in this glass inspired material for example seashell inspired glasses sorry the brick wall we make the bricks are like millimeter in size i would say but the, the arrangement is perfectly periodic mm -hmm. great yeah <clears throat> yeah which is critical i should say for <clears throat> for all these mechanisms that are so important to make the seashell so tough they actually rely on the near perfect periodicity of the the architecture mm. we show in a recent paper we show that any deviation from that perfect periodicity will will uh, will drop all the performance of the material so we want to make it as periodic as possible yeah but i guess to skew in the process maybe i don't know if we have found something maybe counterintuitive the way the design maybe an in, in inspiration but you think it was counterintuitive to the way you think about this the structure or i don't know if you have any moments that that was counterintuitive or i didn't expect yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah but I, yeah i think the <clears throat> That's a great question. I mean, the, the very idea of putting uh, weak interfaces within materials to make them to make them stronger is very counterintuitive when you think about it. Mm. Um, so when I uh, uh, when uh, in my lab at some point we started to to we wanted to implement the lessons we learned from seashells into glass, and we chose glass not because we. Not because of particular applications actually at the beginning because when when you learn fracture mechanics glass is a great material it's an example of a brittle material that doesn't mm. resist fracture right so we wanted to take glass and make it tougher using lessons we learned from the from seashells and then we we started we published uh, a paper i think in 2015 where, with uh, our results where we actually literally took a laser and engraved we took a piece of glass and we shot a focused laser to make many little micro cracks like star-like micro cracks side by side and we actually literally engraved lines within the material and the idea of these lines was to create weak interface to guide cracks incoming cracks into specific configuration mm. right so the, the the idea was to take a nice piece of again to take a perfectly fine piece of glass which has no defect and with the laser we literally shoot defects into the material to make the material better after we published, I talked to some people at big glass manufacturers. Uh, they actually, some of them contacted us. Actually, they wanted to learn more about our approach. Mm -hmm. And um, the conversation was going well at the beginning. But as soon as I told them we're shooting a laser at glass to create defects, then I could I could feel they were shaking on the other side of the line, and they they almost hang up immediately because this goes completely against the the philosophy of design and glass engineering which has to do with suppress damage make sure there's no damage inside the material or at the surface etc this is bad for glass and then with our approach it's totally counterintuitive we actually 
make defects within glass to create weaker lines to actually guide cracks, right? And this mm -hmm. works great, and uh, that nature uses it again for many, uh, in many materials, and we actually demonstrated that you can use it for glass as well. Transition from the lab to industry, for example, the application for designing the stuffer material. Do you think there's a trade-off here? Uh, how do you see this kind of applicability to that can be used in industry recently? This kind of research about designing tougher material or any kind of material one. Do you think it has a room for? Yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, 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 absolutely, yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there's tons of room because we, um, at the end, we. I'm an engineer, right, by training. So I'm, I'm, I actually, you know, make things <laughs> for, and that will hopefully end up in uh, actual applications very, uh, on relatively shortly, okay. right? Um, so the type of uh, materials we've been developing, we are again going back to fabrication. We always wanted to make sure that we could, uh, they would be scalable. That is the techniques, for example, this laser technique I mentioned. It can be used to make very large volume of materials for not to at a modest cost. So, um, so that makes and then of of course the you have the if you can show with the um, demonstration material that you made in the lab that you increase the toughness of glass, for example, for a, a cost that's quite reasonable, then that becomes immediately very attractive for industry. Okay. Mm. Um, I don't think there's any. Um, uh, we have to make any kind of trade-off in our uh, thinking, in our intellectual thinking, to try to approach industries and to make them more interesting in, in materials. Because from the beginning, that's what we, we had in mind, right? Make a go in yeah. the lab, make a bio-inspired material, and actually do mechanical tests and show that it's better than the, what's currently on the market in terms of glass, if we, if we do glass, right? So we always compare um, uh, with like, we always compare our materials with like a reference state of the art material. For example, when we worked on glass recently, uh, we, we did, we used that bio-inspired uh, architecture to make impact resistant glass panels. And we always compare with what's available uh, now on the market, like tempered glass, laminated glass. So we do, we do this, the test on the same, Using the same techniques on these existing materials for comparison, right? So that makes it very um, uh, interesting for companies. I think when they they see that and um, working with with companies is quite to us. It's been very enriching and interesting because they they always take us down to earth and say, okay, you can tell all the stories you want about weak interface and Naker and uh, you know, seashells evolution, etc. At the end, they want to see. Yeah. That you have, uh, you have tempered glass. You have your glass. How much better it is? Give me the hard number, and I want to see the <laughs> the, yeah. the hard data. So it's it's um, it kind of forced us to to keep our feet on on the ground, and then uh, and then um, actually uh, kept us on track to this objective of really making better engineering materials. So since it's close to the end, I have a few questions. Maybe what is your aspiration when it comes to designing the material, for example? These properties. Do you still think there's other properties you want to add to the material? I don't know what's your aspiration when it comes to this research line. Yeah, that's a great question actually, because the 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 uh, recently we started to look at other 
property. I'm going to start over actually on this answer. Yeah. So it's a very interesting question. And the, the, um, so over the past 10 years or so, we've been focusing on fracture toughness and how to make tougher glasses or ceramics. And uh, more recently, we started to look at other properties. And uh, this brings me to morphing is one of these properties that how can you, how does nature change the shape of objects and components with a minimal amount of of, uh, of muscle forces. And so um, that's what took us to fish fins recently, actually. So that's uh, moving a bit away from strength and toughness and more about how uh, a material can change shape very effectively in nature and uh, what we can learn from it to applications in robotics, for example, or aerospace. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. And maybe I can just ask you about the change in that case, because I think that's also very interesting topics on top of robotics. How you can, I, I don't know, manage to do that with minimum energy or this should be change and maintaining the original properties as well. And right, yeah, yeah. I, th I think it's a great, it's a very interesting question. And uh, I think that one of the things we, we're very excited about actually is that the solution you find in a system like fish fins, which are extremely efficient morphing material, is um, pretty similar to, to what we found in seashells and bone. And again, you find this idea of hard building blocks, which have a finite size, not too big, and they arrange in specific architecture and they attach together by much softer, much more deformable proteins. And so you find again this same idea of uh, very hard combined with very soft in intricate architectures to generate some very unique and exciting functionalities. So that's what we, that's, yeah. I think that's the, the general theme of our research is basically this, right? Very hard, very soft architecture, weak interface and see in nature, how does nature start with this and plays the game and generates all kinds of interesting uh, properties and functions. Yeah, great. So a few questions left, maybe the first one about optimization, because you mentioned at the beginning that, for example, in zoology, they hate this word of optimization, if I understood correctly. And for you, how do you see these tools we recently have to design this, this interfaces, like our multi-material? How do you see the tools? Do you think we still, there's something need to be considered? Or how do you think about the t current tools we have? Um, well, there's a... Um, um, uh, I would uh, we, we do a bit of optimization in our research, but it's, it's very crude. Um, mm. So... Uh, the main method we've been using actually is, is uh, it's not so-called so topology optimization. What we do is more like geometrical optimization. And um, our approach has been to take, um, uh, to develop relatively simple models, either like small, like close form solution or simple theoretical models or to, to use computer models, but they're very inexpensive to try to mm. capture the mechanism. And then they, computationally, these, all these models, they are taken individually, they are extremely efficient. So that means you can run hundreds or thousands or millions of them mm. overnight, for example. Okay, so the, once you have this in head, uh, you can actually do all kinds of parametric study and look at the effect of geometrical change on material response or mechanical performance. And uh, so that's our approach to optimization has been precisely that, right? Instead of trying to look for the design space and using um, optimization, like 
complex optimization tools to find the best design. We just explore the entire space. So this is called brute force optimization. You just take yeah. the, we make the design space small enough and our models are inexpensive enough that we can just try any combination. Yeah. And um, and now it, it's it's not very popular with people doing optimization because it's not elegant at all. We just try <laughs> every combination. But uh, given the um, the simplicity simplicity of the model, if your design space is not too big, and given the the power of the computers nowadays, then mm. that makes more and more sense. I think this kind of yeah. approach. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So two questions left. The first one, I don't know if in the research do you have moment of doubt because sometimes we have ideas, but we are not sure whether that's right idea or yeah, it would lead to something. I don't know how we deal with doubt in research. If you have new ideas or something, do you have moment of doubt? Yeah. 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 Sure. Yeah. I mean, that's part of the our job. Yeah. <laughs> the yeah. I think with experience, you you deal with the. With the doubt in what you, if what you're doing is going to work much better, and you, with experience, you're willing to take more and more risks in terms of what you're trying in the lab, mm. uh, which is great, I think. Um, in our line of research, I think we have a great advantage is that we see uh, things in nature, and we know that the the performance is very high. That has been measured often before by others, and we know that it works. It's there, it's been there for hundreds of millions of years, it works. So we know there's something there that makes it so good. Now we need to find that thing, right? People who, do, who start to design new materials from scratch, they may take one direction for material design and development, but they don't know if it's going to end in some attractive properties at the end. So this is much more uh, uh, frightful, I think, to, to, when you don't have a... yeah. In that case, again, we have a natural material that we know works very well. And so we know there's something to find in this material. If you look enough with the right tool and for long enough, then you're going to find that secret. And we know it's in there. Yeah. yeah. Great. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any advice, maybe in the field or you have received and was a life changing. Uh, yeah, don't. Yeah. You have to go out there and make mistakes. And mm. and I like to tell my students to, we do a lot of experiments. So I like to tell them to go in the lab and mess around and try all kinds of things for like a month. That's great. And then you push the limits and you make a lot of mistakes, but then you can yeah. make yourself comfortable in the lab. So that's the only way is to actually make all these mistakes and to mess around for. <laughs> that's very yeah. good. Of course, don't break anything expensive. <laughs> In the lab, but then yeah, within these limits, of course. But uh, I think it's uh, something that's um, uh, important. I think at the beginning, yeah, because students, good students, come in and they they want to do everything right the first time, and they want to optimize their time in the lab, and so they think they're gonna jump to perfect experiment from day one. But I think this process of messing up and the lab and try many different things. Uh, on purpose almost to see push the boundaries of what's possible is is very important yeah. another thing i would say is um uh less is more that is uh in my experience the our own research and what i see often in mm. our favorite papers from other groups is that um the way they the tools they use to 
for this discovery are the, the, the is quite limited actually. Mm. Um, there's a, maybe one or two techniques combined, but no more than this. And sometimes the equipment is used is quite inexpensive actually. It doesn't have to be mm. like fancy, extremely expensive microscopes to do yeah. great research. So to do great research, I think it's um, uh, if you work within the confine of some constraints in terms of the range of instruments you have at your disposal, that constraint is very critical to, to do good science, I think. Um, I would hate to be in a lab where I have access to every single equipment available nowadays for experimental test or characterization because I would I would use a one half a day, another I would jump to another one, etc. And at the end, it's a mishmash, and you don't know. <clears throat> uh, there's no uh, clear um, scientific finding here, so that's I think that's something important, and especially in the context where we're a bit we in a bit of pressure as academics to to write bigger and bigger grants to get fancier and fancier, fancier equipments. I think at the end uh, you can do a lot of extremely good science with. Uh, with not too much uh, uh, resource or or, yeah. or or labs, yeah. That's very wonderful. I want to thank you for mentioning that because I think uh, that's a very important point. Thank you for mentioning that. I don't know if you have any final words you'd like to say, maybe, yeah, if you have any final words you'd like to say. Well, uh, yeah, I would say again, uh, yeah, go. If you're interested in this area of research, bioinspiration, whether it's for materials or robotics or optics or whichever then just go out there and um, I think the most important thing is to have fun go have fun in the lab or yeah. on your computer if you computer model and you, if you do computer modeling uh, uh, just just have fun that's the most important part I think wonderful thanks so much Professor Francois. I think it was very inspiring thank you thank you okay thank you very much